What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is The Ringer's latest narrative podcast? You can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then, cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air with me, Larry Wilmore. Uh, I appreciate you subscribing, tuning in, telling your friends, all that kind of stuff. Remember to spread the word about Black on the Air if you guys enjoy this. Um, And the podcast is me talking to people who I'm interested in, subjects I'm interested in, and, um, you know, Always uh, trying to be as truthful as I can from my point of view and entertaining at the same time. It's kind of what black on the air is, you know. And not afraid to talk about the tougher issues like race and, you know, a lot of the issues we're going through today. That's what black on the air is, especially if you're listening to it for the first time. Um, It can be fun. It can be provocative. It can be a lot of things. But hopefully it's always interesting. That's what I hope. That's what I hope you guys are getting out of it. And I hope you're enjoying it. I enjoy doing it. Um, This week, particularly, I am talking to Helen Hunt, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, I got to know Helen a few years ago. We had a meeting and and uh, about doing a project together, and she's uh, she's she's so great. She's just uh, just an amazing person in so many ways. Uh, And we talk about a new show that she's on, Blind Spotting, which is on Stars, I believe, but uh, kind of have an extended conversation about several things. We talked a few days ago, so I hope you enjoy that. I'm so lucky, you guys. I get to talk to you know a lot of these people that I've admired for years and stuff like that, you know. Uh, so, so I knock, knock, knock. Count my lucky stars. Um, sometimes you you uh, get lucky in this business and that type of thing. Doing this podcast, I really feel like that, you know. Um. I don't have the biggest podcast in the world. It's not like wildly produced and all that stuff, you know. Um, you know, I don't think it's trending right now, whatever, you know. But over the last, when did I start this? 2017. So I've been doing it for four years. I think we've consistently done some interesting things. And I and I want to thank everybody that's been with me that long and 
and be listening, you know, and really enjoy it. I really get some good comments. And even when you guys disagree with me or come at me or whatever, I don't mind. You see, I don't, I don't, you know, argue with people who have a a disagreement with me or whatever. Cause I'm like, that's fine. I don't mind if people disagree. That's fine. Sometimes people like to insult me in their disagreements, which is so funny. Like it can't be that I think differently or I have a different opinion. It has to be, there's something wrong with me. People do that a lot. I try to stay away from that because usually it's on Twitter and I don't think it's the right forum for that. Honestly, uh, sometimes you want to clap back, but I've learned Twitter is not the right place to do that. You know, and it depends what it is too. But not for a thoughtful thing. You can't be real thoughtful in Twitter clapbacks, really. You can only be, like, punchy, you know, that type of thing. It could be very entertaining, though, I have to say that. Um, So there's a couple of topics that I want to cover in, I think, the next couple of weeks or so. Um, today, I don't have a—I'll just talk about, uh, I think, vaccinations real quick. And then we'll get to the interview. But I just wanted to give you a preview. And, yes, I will talk about— the issue in Texas about abortions and what's going on in the country right now. But I want to have the right person on to talk about that with. So, so I'm setting that up. And the other one is critical race theory. Critical race theory is kind of out there right now. And I feel like it's a sphinx right now. It's one of those things that I feel like is right in front of us, but you know, good luck explaining it. Um, and I think even the people who are behind critical race theory have had some trouble explaining completely what it is, you know, because there's two aspects to it. There's its goal and its implementation, which aren't necessarily aligned all the time. I think just a little preview, but I think what I want to do with that, rather than just give my opinion on it is uh, engage in a conversation on it. I think that'll serve this podcast better. So uh, I look forward to that in the next few weeks. We'll set that up and then hopefully you guys will enjoy that. Because um, it is a big issue right now. There's a lot underneath that. But I may touch some of it in my weigh-ins, depending if there's an issue associated with it. But right now, I want to talk just a little bit about privilege. Because um, something's bugging me right now. Uh, uh, we've talked a lot about white privilege, you know, that kind of stuff. It's kind of out in the air right now. And, you know, it's rankled a lot of people, but it was... I. I remember when it was first being talked about, I felt it was something that really needed to be said because when you have privilege, you're not really aware of it. And it's kind of the reason to shine a light on it and all of its ramifications of that privilege. It doesn't mean you're guilty of any behavior necessarily, but it does, it can inform you into sometimes your worldview, your point of view, how you come at different things and how you interpret different activities, you know? Um, Me Too movement really shined a light on male privilege, you know, especially in this country. (laughs) You can hear Buster Barker in the background. You know, my eyes were opened up to a lot of that. I thought, yeah, I'm cool. You know, I'm this. But I said, Larry, you have male privilege. You know, you operate in the world as a male. You know, you have to see that that is a thing in the world. It, It skews how things are interpreted and how you behave in the world, you know, and it's it's good to be made aware of those things, whether it makes me feel uncomfortable or not is kind of irrelevant. It kind of is what it is, right? There's another kind of privilege though. And there are other kinds of privileges too, you know, straight privilege, you know, definitely. Oh my God. (laughs) Straight privilege. Whoo. Like we still haven't talked enough about that, you know, 
And but I think it's interesting. It's interesting to notice how straight people, and I'm a straight person, have reacted to a lot of what's happened in the LGBTQ movement. You know, some of it good, some of it, you know, dinosaurish. I guess. And I think a lot of that comes from a position of privilege of not having to deal in your life with a lot of the issues that people who are under that category have had to deal with. You know, a lot of those issues. You know. Um, so anyhow, the privilege I want to talk about right now is American privilege, because that's something all of us share. The people that are in America right now listening to this podcast and American privilege is a sneaky one because we don't, it it isn't always apparent, you know, we don't know we're operating out of that and it can manifest itself in many different ways and how are the fact that we live in a place where we're relatively protected from the rest of the world. You know, um, all of our threats are within the country or ourselves, right? We're, you know, Pac-Man, we're eating up ourselves, you know, would be our biggest threat, but not necessarily other countries. We're many other places in the world, you know, that's usually kind of a threat too, you know, is the border is a certain type of threat. You know, we don't have that. Um, for the most part, we are entitled to speak our minds, you know. Um, people talk about cancel culture a lot, but cancel culture is a small price to pay for the things you say compared to uh, the culture of many other countries where it's not cancel culture, it's your fucked culture. You know, if you speak out against your government or say certain things, you know, but we live, you know, that's our first amendment for Christ's sake. Our first amendment is about speech. That gives you a lot of privilege, you know, in how you engage with the rest of the world. But the biggest one, one of the bigger ones, though, is our prosperity. Our prosperity has also given us a type of privilege in the world um, that has come out in different ways. You know, we've been called ugly Americans and that sort of thing. A lot of that is true, definitely, in relationship to the rest of the world. But right now, it's manifested itself in the whole vaccine movement. And this has really upset me a lot um, because, look, whether you want to get vaccinated or not, I'm not going to argue with you on that. If you don't want to, you want to take your chances, whatever. But the fact that we got to fucking pay people to get vaccinated, like with a lottery, are you kidding me? Like giving out a million dollars to people who have been doing it the wrong way, have been dragged to the vaccination places, have been dragged to do, which I believe is the right thing to get vaccinated. But like I said, You don't believe that? I'm not going to argue with it, but motherfucker, I'm not going to pay you to do the right thing. Are you kidding me? When there are so many places in the world right now, Africa, uh, places in Asia, uh, look what's happening in India. There's so many poor countries that have not been able to get this vaccine that desperately needed, who they want, (laughs) would die to have the opportunity to say, nah, vaccine or nah. Nah, they would love to be able to have that question to say, yes, give me the fucking vaccine. But with our privilege, we have the ability to say, you know, what? I think that's experimental. I don't think that's right. It's like, fuck you, man. Fuck you. We're not going to give you this kind of money to have that opinion and drag you to the polls. What the fuck? Seriously, not the polls, but, you know, the uh, sticks, the needles, let's just say. I'm... This really irks me, especially um, 
when you watch the reports from around the world, you know, and even Biden is saying, you know, we're going to donate all these vaccines to people. By the way, many of the vaccines that we have right now stored are expiring. Like they can only stay in the refrigerator for so long because people don't want to take them. It's crazy, you guys. Crazy, 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 crazy. Um, that that whole fight over masks to me is a privilege issue. You are a privileged country when you have a fight over how to protect yourselves over a fucking mask that you don't want to wear it because your liberty is more important than just just being on the safe side. You want to go down a rabbit hole to prove that this thing really doesn't work as opposed to why don't we just play it safe? Let's just play it safe, you know, for the betterment of everybody. That's some fucking privilege when you have the ability to do that. That means your life has not been threatened a lot. It has not been threatened a lot. When you can easily just shuffle that off is no big deal. Whew, man. I'm telling you. Um, I'm just thinking in my mind, there's got to be a way we can have some better conversations about this shit. There's just got to be a way. Got to, got to, got to be a way. So anyhow, um, that's it. I was just thinking if there's anything else. Nope. I think next week I'll cover uh, some more of this other stuff that's been on my mind. But it's kind of hot today. And uh, I think we're better served <laughs> getting into my conversation with Helen Hunt. So thanks for listening, guys. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. You know what? I keep telling you guys, and you probably don't believe me because I keep saying this is going to be a treat, but... Guys, we have a lot of treats on this podcast, and we get another special treat because one of my favorite people uh, in the world is on today. You know, she's you know a legend in television as far as I'm concerned, Mad About You. It's one of the classic shows on TV, Oscar winner, uh, director, and we always want to see her on the screen. And now she is in Blind Spotting. It is uh, the TV, I guess, uh, show of the movie Blind Spotting. And she's on Black on the Air today. Helen Hunt, welcome <laughs> Hi, to Black friend. on the Air. I'm so happy to see you. It's so nice to see you. As uh, always, I, you know, we uh, met a few years ago about doing a project. And, oh, man, I was so, <laughs> I, I never told you this, but I was so excited at the prospect of possibly collaborating and that sort of thing. And it was so, we had such interesting conversations. I really remember that. I'm it was still so, working on that thing, just so you know. <laughs> and, and by the way, and I'll bring that up again later, because you were you were ahead of the curve. Uh, thank you. I was before me too. And before- I'm giving you props right now, and I'll bring, <laughs> oh I'll come God, back to that you. because you deserve the props for that. Um, but first, uh, congratulations on the new show. You know, thank when you. someone has a show, I like to say congrats because you know you don't get a show every day. Exactly. I don't get a show every day. <laughs> That's, That's exactly sure. right. So tell us about blind spotting. Well, you saw the movie, I bet. Did you see the movie? I, you know, I didn't see the movie, but I remember talking to David about it. Oh, it's so beautiful. That's your first job. You have till Sunday. Chocolate. Yes, that's true. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful <laughs> yeah. movie that I saw and loved, written and starring Rafael Casal and Debbie yeah. Diggs about their best friendship in Oakland. 
they really grew up as best friends in Oakland. And then they created fictional characters that grew up as best friends. And the movie is David's character's last three days on parole. And but his white best friend is much more likely to do something scary and violent and get him in trouble. So it's watching him live with the tension of this ticking clock. Um, so the TV show, they're smart enough to take the DNA and what was beautiful about that and create a whole new thing. So the TV show is about all the way mass incarceration not only affects the trembling, traumatized three days on, left on parole character, but the person who's arrested's mother, son, wife, sister, neighborhood, just watching. I heard David say mass incarceration does exactly what it was designed to do, which is tear people apart. Wow. So this is a comedy about a family nah. yes. <laughs> torn apart by of mass incarceration. Is, right? And yes. a musical, by the way. I mean, there's dance, there's spoken word. It's pretty, it's like a bouquet of art you know, in 30 it's kind, minutes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to classify it, I think, when you watch it. And I think it's it's kind of what the landscape of TV is now. Like, we say comedy for some of these shows, but many of them aren't really that, you know. And I, I even think the TV Academy needs to come up with new definitions. Like, there definitely should be a dramedy category, definitely. For sure. Maybe a new name for it, but yes. I mean, everything I've ever done that I've liked, the movies I made, the best movies I were in. And this show, you know, is like a comedy until the subject matter won't let it be a comedy anymore. And I really yes. believe in that version of storytelling. When people are laughing, their bodies are jiggling and out of control. They're making sounds and then they're vulnerable and you can really have them experience something that is meaningful. Yeah. And, and especially when it's really about something. Yeah. Like, what is the thing about? I always try to hammer that in when I'm working yes. on something. Like, what is this thing actually about? What well, that's we the Jim Brooks lesson. For me, it was a yes. lesson when I worked with Jim Brooks. What's I don't know. He called it the magic sentence, but I do. Yes. Magic and sentence I, is great, too. I, yeah. I remember him saying that broadcast news was you can't love someone you don't trust. And what was. Uh, no, that's great. not right. That's not right. You can't no. love someone you don't respect. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Because the, the William Hurt character, she didn't respect him, but she was in love with him. And the, the juicy Completely. thing about that sentence, which is why I always use that one when I'm trying to my wannabe Jim Brooks, you know, yeah. writing process is that you could argue about it over dinner. You and I could go Absolutely. to dinner and say, you totally can love. I have loved someone. Absolutely. And someone else could say that's not really love. So that's the best right. of those, I think, are the ones you could argue about over dinner. So, right. When I'm talking, I mentor people sometimes and do a little bit of teaching writing and that kind of stuff. But I always reduce it to that, too. You know, tell me in a sentence. And I always give the example when I did the Bernie Mac show. To me, it was two sentences. It was like, children are terrorists. I don't negotiate with terrorists. You know? <laughs> I remember you telling me that. That's yeah. perfect. It's yes. perfect. And it's that simple, Helen. Yes. 22 episodes of what yes. kind of terrorist Correct. are they today? That's is exactly. And it's in the DNA Whatever your show is about, it's in the DNA of every scene in that film or in that show. And that's how you know what's right. Because a lot of times I feel writers get lost or that type of thing, or they they go off on tangents and people don't know how to give notes to that. Or like editing, I think, is is an undervalued tool in writing. People are so concerned with just, you know, the script. But it's more like, what do you take out of it that gives you the clarity to find the story, you know? For what me, do you it's re- another draft. It's a chance to yes. do another draft. Right, the, exactly. The, the challenge is, can you wipe your eyes well enough or take yes, two weeks yes. off to come back and look at it like, some, like, oh, she doesn't have to go to the store at all. The story will yes. still make sense if I take yeah. out the whole scene where she went to the store. Yes, and when you yeah. get lost, it's it's simplifying that, you know? Yeah. It's, 
are we servicing what this thing is? That sentence, know? yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. Take, you know? And the two movies I made, I found them, but I mean, it's embarrassing. It took me half a decade to find it in one case and, you know, almost as long in the other. Like those sentences don't come easily to me anyway. Oh my God. They don't come easy, which is why when you find them, I think they're valuable. Yeah. And they you know? not only affect the writing I found, I directed these two movies and the first movie I directed had to do with, you can't really love till you've made peace with betrayal. And in this case of this movie, it had to do with betrayal by God, but that affected everything. It affected what color Bette Midler's wardrobe should be. Because if it's a story about betrayal and my character is meant to trust her, better not put her in wacky, brightly colored outfits, better make her look like a grounded, trustworthy person. Like it, it affects every choice you make as a director too. Is that then she found me? Yeah. It's such an interesting, uh, uh, film because when I think about that, and it's funny because there's so many things you could point out on that, but it's nice to hear it from you of what that <laughs> vision is for it because, you know, it almost allows you to enjoy it on another level. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when, I need to. When, <laughs> I need to drive the DVD over to people who still have a yes. DVD player and explain that to them. I know, door to door filmmaker. It's yeah, it's on a higher level. So <laughs> what? It, so was that the thing? Let's go back to blind spotting a bit. So the mm-hmm. mass incarceration part of it and the family part was that the thing that drew you in? Because I read that you. Uh, that the uh, people who were making the TV show found out that you liked their project and invited you in. Is that how it happened? Yeah, they found out because I posted about it. You know, you Uh have this social media thing and what are you going to do with it? You know, I know what it's like to make movies and even the sessions. I was in this movie called The Sessions and I'm super proud of. I got nominated for it. It went to Sundance. Everybody freaked out. And then really not as many people saw it as we thought. So you've got to like throw, throw yourself behind work that you see that you like, or I like doing that, I should say. So I saw this movie and I tweeted about it. And I'm barely on Twitter anymore, but I, I, at that point, tweeted about it. And immediately Raphael wrote me back or whatever, he messaged me and I messaged him. And next thing you know, we were having coffee and it turned out that we, there was a lot of crossover in what we cared about. Um, we both had a deep desire to really work with friends and people we like and not work otherwise in fact, he and David and I went down a long rabbit hole before we made blind where they made blind spotting invited me to be in it of wanting to make a sequel to Twister with wow. black and brown storm chasers like rocket ki- science kids from an HBCU who go who who are now That's the great. crew. Right? I love that. Yeah. I love that too. Well, meanwhile, in June of 2020, as studios were promising undisclosed amounts for supporting diversity, we couldn't really couldn't get in the room. That's amazing to me. But it would have been great. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be a Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what we're seeing oh. now in film and on TV is, I'll call it a POC, just to, to, to shortcut it, because it's more mm-hmm. than just black filmmakers now, which makes me happy, you know, that it's opened up. But there's, it's more genre busting now, which I love. You know, it doesn't have yeah. to fit into one type of, let's call it historical pain genre, you know, or that type of thing. Well, that's why I thought this, we were so excited that this big blockbuster with popcorn yes. and scary stuff could also, but what we found is, you know, it's one thing to let a woman, for example, uh, or a POC make their indie. It's another thing to hand them a giant pot of money and a franchise. That's the way to move the needle. And they weren't willing to do it. It's like in television, you know, as a female director, they're dying to have you come do a couple episodes because hopefully you're good and they can tick off a couple of bucks. But a pilot, uh, better go with the white guys right. a lot, right? So that's the thing I think the next wall to 
to mow down. <laughs> no, this is very exciting because this conversation, there's so many tentacles. I, can I know. Go down. We could go down any road. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, why did you have such a personal connection to this issue? Because you, you, when you brought up mass incarceration, and this is going back to maybe our conversation it a few is, years it goes ago, right back there. Can you talk about that? Because I think it is very interesting. What attracted to oh, attracted may not be the right word, but no, what it was is. it is or revelatory maybe might be better too. What what was it that touched you maybe about this issue at first? All right, I'm going to share it with you, but I'm going to say here it go like white ally, awkward white no, ally. No, 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 don't worry your about mouth. that. Well, you know that's why I love this part because I'm playing the most awkward white loud out. Awkward white ally ever. Yes. But that's um, great. but it's who I am in real life too. So to be honest, it was, and I am not comparing anything to anything, but I just went through something really hard that I shared with you at the time. Just yes. I suffered, you know what I mean? Right. And a, a personal thing that you went through that, that kind of made you very vulnerable, let's say. I, I kept looking at all these topics like justice and forgiveness in my own life. Yes. This is a lo- long time ago. And I found myself interested in this thing I heard about called restorative justice and then turned around and I had flown myself to a conference in Florida with people who've devoted their entire lives to restorative justice. And they, that conference was titled Restorative Justice and Race because the year before they tried to have it not be about race and every mm-hmm. room blew up. So <laughs> there's, there's Cornell West and there's Fania Davis wow. and there's my friend Sujatha Balaga. These are people of color who have devoted their lives to looking at this long before June of 2020. Exactly. And you're just there just listening, right? You're just a sponge going. I'm there because I want to make a movie about restorative justice. I'm there because I'm lost and in pain. And all I know is I feel less alone because I'm in the room with other people talking about suffering. And mine came from a more, you know, I suffered as a woman and I'm not comparing it to black sure. suffering, but I felt right. better then I felt with everybody who was cracking jokes. I don't know. I just felt, and, and justice. I started to think, what is this word? Um, and the restorative justice people I've talked to aren't particularly fond of the word forgiveness being thrown around because it puts pressure on the victim. I'm sure there's six better words now that they use rather than victim, but you know what I mean? If you bring up forgiveness, suddenly I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to make you feel better. I have issues with that too, by the way, yeah, but from a different too. standpoint. Yeah. I have a lot of issues with that when people just throw out forgiveness so fast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, hold too. on a second. First of all, <laughs> it needs to be asked for. It's a two way street. It's a two way thing. It's not a one way street. No, it's you know? not. And people will say, you just do it for you, but you can't. There's no, I have not found the magic button. <laughs> exactly. Um, if I'm you like, find no, it, you better no. text me, Larry. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm like, no, I don't think so. I have a lot of arguments against that. I think it's, uh, it's serving, it's servicing the wrong thing about that subject. You know, there are different ways to treat your psychological connection to something rather than that pact that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a pact. For it's me not and a you. self-serving. Yes, correct. For me and you, because I did meet right. two parents of that suffered a terrible, terrible loss and were in this world of restorative justice. And I tried to say, you know, the restorative justice people are pushing back on the whole forgiveness thing. And they were like, well, we're Franciscan Catholics and that's what we want. But but it had more to do with almost the way you forgive a debt. You will never be able to repay me, so I'm going to forgive this debt. It's a whole other lane, but I'm just speaking up for the people for whom that word is the right lane. It is a devotion to God and the person they want to be. So I know it's not always true, but I thought it was, but I thought it was interesting. So in a way, I had my, you know, a lot of white liberal people in the last couple of years are 
waking up to the world they live in and learning that black history is American history and all those things. I had just as awkward and late, uh, I was nine years early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a lot. In the, in the scope of 400 years, it's not much, but right. but it's what happened to me. So I wanted to write about it. I didn't know what else yeah. to do. I can't write about, you know, right. if you're going to meet the guy. I just had to write about that. So mm-hmm. I am still working on a piece about that. And blind spotting showed up and I went, wait a minute, this is a job being offered to me with people I've become friends with. You know, David and Raphael and I spent a good amount of the pandemic on my front lawn watching movies on a cheap screen I bought, staying 10 feet apart and ordering food. And now they're asking me to be part of something that's exactly about what I've been caring about for the last decade. The only thing that I am moved, I, every book I read, I just can't get out of this lane. I've uh, I've just found Jasmine Ward. I don't know if you've read her. I read both of Isabella Wilkerson's books. I don't know. I just keep walking on this lane with my blonde hair and my awkward allyship. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know why or what's happening, but there's no, no more compelling narrative that we're all part of. That's probably why. We are all part of it. We all are connected to it. And um, it's a very interesting dynamic. Tom Hanks just wrote an interesting op-ed in the New York Times about this subject. I don't know if you read that. But no, it's re- I'd love to. I will it's, right away. It's, it's fascinating, Helen, because he's coming at it from a standpoint of, I was never taught this in school, you know, like in... That's a- very sane, sober place to start. And that yeah. that does explain a lot of it for sure. I mean, I've had people say, why? Why are you come back to this topic? And I, I'm not being posy. I don't understand how they don't understand. This is where we live. And this is an unprecedented, unrepeated, singular 400-year-old event. And, yeah. you know. it's. I think it's because it's always been put in this other space. It's a, this is their thing. It's you know, black people thing or their thing when it really is an us space. And arguably I've heard people say more our problem than your problem, but whatever, here we are. It's <laughs> us though. It's, it, us. it's an us thing, you know? It and is. I think for me personally, cause I'm kind of contrary and I, I like to think for myself on these things, of course, <laughs> is I do believe that we have to get there together. I'm not, uh, this is your problem or this is us or that. I think, there's a lot of humanity that has to be in the center of the healing, you yeah. know, of yeah. it, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in it, you know, and that sort of thing. But um, when you joined this project, had the scripts been written already or were you involved in some of the creative aspect of it? Uh, but both. They had drafts mm-hmm. of scripts and, you know, I don't get any big thrill about giving people notes. I would love to be handed something and say, see on the set. Right, um, right. <laughs> but I, I, you know, there's a lot of things that, these guys know that I don't know living in Oakland growing up in the neighborhood they did. I, I know about being older. I know about being an awkward ally. I know about what happens when you have a kid and mm-hmm. the indescribable uh, meaning and care that has, and your kid is threatened, you know, like, and, and, and that hope in some ways wrapped up in, in the kid you're loving. And so I had something to say about those things and they really wanted to hear them. Um, and so before we started, I said, all right, I need three things. I need, I need a, to look right. You got to pay the money. A, Helen Hunt, what I said to them is Helen Hunt in a bad wig ruins blind spotting. I don't know much, <laughs> but I know that that's true. And that's expensive. You got to, we got to get that right. And that's I don't want to get COVID. I want to know that it's really buttoned up and tight. 
And I want to know that we're all three going to be feel good about the scenes before I shoot them. And I've had so many times, Larry, where they'll say yes to anything when they want you. And then you sign up and they're like, oh, well, I forgot about that. I forgot. I promised that. Yeah. They um, delivered and more on every promise we made. The cast was creative and amazing. Everybody supports each other. It's really this job dropped out of the sky into my lap with these men that I have come to just love. It's, it's been really important for me to remember that, you know, these things happen sometimes. I love my talking uh, when I had uh, David on the show and his whole experience in Oakland is very interesting, you know, because we don't have Raphael too. He's uh, yeah, he, I would love to. Yeah. He, yeah. I re- highly yeah. recommend it. He's uh, he's and together they're a good a, pair. They are. Yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, when did you guys shoot this by the way? My worst quality. When did something happen? It was in the middle of COVID and it was when COVID was last fall? bad. So yeah, it was fall. We took a break uh, okay. in the winter and then finished up. Yeah. What were for you, because there's a lot of different points of view in here and uh, maybe we can tackle them all. I want to talk about what were your the, some of your biggest challenges to something like this? Um, there's the physical challenge, of course, which you just mentioned, but did, did you feel this was a challenging thing to do? Because I know you're the, uh, kind of a person who you like to approach things that have a challenge to them or that, you know, have something more than just your walk through the park, you know? Yeah. Did, do you still get, are you still kind of, fear is not the right word. Are you scared sometimes when you're acting or that type of thing when you approach a project? What is your emotional feelings in there? I, I want to Skywrite the word yes. Look yeah. up, Larry. Look up. I, I didn't know. See, so, do you yeah. see it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, is this I mean, Oscar winner? Is she, does she still no, no, get no. like nervous? That no, kind no, of? no. That sadly, that <laughs> has less power than you'd think. But there's a line in Chekhov's The Seagull where Nina, the young actress, says, you have no idea what it feels like to be acting when you know it's bad. Mm. It's, it's a feeling like no other. And so my fear mm. of that feeling is a great mm. motivator. And I just... I don't, I work a lot and I knew I had to work yeah. a lot, wanted to work a lot on this part, how she walked, you know, she's different than me at in, in spirit. She's the same as me, very much the same. I'll, I'll do anything for my kid and my grandkid. I am this loud, awkward ally. She's slightly louder and more awkward than me. You know, she buys a <laughs> balloon in the shape of Africa for her, for her black grandson. I'm like an inch back from that. <laughs> And you kind of dance into your first scene. I do. And I really had to talk to them about that. And I said, I love it. But her kid was arrested on this day. Yeah. But let's yeah. be sure we know what that is. And and I relate to that for our first couple of conversations. Like, all right, I'm going to fucking dance. Fuck you. You took my kid. Here comes a chapter that's bound to be painful. I'm going to act as if. And that's how I get through. And I, I relate to that, too. I relate to that, too. Did you have conversations not so much about the script, but about maybe what some of the feelings are about being a family dealing with this type of thing. I've, I've dealt with this type of thing in my family years ago. Uh, my sister uh, was involved in that kind of situation. Uh, so I know how it can affect family and everything. Did you guys have those types of conversations at all? You know, because you're, you're a mom dealing with this and all the, the tentacles that I gotta use that word again, <laughs> but there's right. a, you know, there's a lot I of different issues. I thought about her as an octopus a little bit. So you're, yeah, right. Yeah. you're right to get that. Yeah, because um, you're dealing so much... with the grandchildren, children, you know, yeah. this, this girl who's in your son's life, your son who's not there, you know, there's right. a house, you know, a home, house yeah. and a home, those type of issues. A lot of issues going on in there. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about them as issues because I think 
we were all pretty, you know, in our, from our very different perspectives lined up on how we felt about um, how the country works. But we did, I just wanted to make sure that I could follow who she was. You know, that we talk, the things we talked about were like, when do I support? Jasmine Cephas Jones is the center of this series. She is Rafael Casal's uh, longtime partner. And in the very first scene, Rafael's arrested on a drug charge. Here we go again. Here we go again. The family's ripped apart. So we talked about when do, does my character bow to her as the mother? And when do I say, you're not going to tell your son that his dad's in prison? Right. I'm, then I'm then I'm going rogue and I'm going to tell him myself like when when is uh, the grandson my priority? When is the son my priority? When is Jasmine's character my priority? Those kinds of things. How does the family dynamic work? How to be not judgmental of my sex worker daughter, but still adamant that she understand that I was in the room when that phrase sex worker was coined. Don't blow me off. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I, we, I didn't want to make her. I wanted to make her as nuanced as I am about things like this. Mm-hmm. That's how many, ep- how many episodes did you guys uh, get? They uh, did eight and I was in eight. six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, did you uh, direct any of the episodes? Or I didn't. Two? We, mm-hmm. Ralph and I talked about that early on and, you know, I've got my daughter in the house for one more year and it was mm-hmm. COVID. And it's like, I think she was having, I was like the principal of the school, the cafeteria lunch lady, you know, she was doing zoom school at home. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, I wanted to be home a lot and I wanted to do the show. So I didn't, I great gracefully said maybe next time for directing, but he yeah. did. Rafa directed the last one. He did an incredible job. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. And this is on stars, I believe. Right? It's on stars. Yeah. Yeah. And it premieres on the 13th. It does. Okay, good. I just want people to know that have the information. You know, yeah. stars, stars, low key is like putting out some interesting content out well, there. Well, this show think. is not like other shows, and I, yeah. I, how I felt about it is what I just read that Rafa said, which is like all these artists put every the, all of what they do in this bouquet, and we're just handing it to people on Sunday. I'm I'm really proud to be part of it. Yeah, there's even like some a spoken word element. There's there musical stuff. There's a, a little bit of everything. So I have the feeling this is one of those series that's going to keep evolving as it goes along in terms of its form. I'm sure because there are yeah. artists who wouldn't let it not do that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit because, you know, there's so many things to talk to you about. You did, uh, I think, a year and a half ago or something. Mad About You reboot. Yes. Go to speaking of go to Amazon and watch that because it's really yes. good. I'm like, where is it where right is now? Because because it, it was on Spectrum or something like that, right at the time. It was, you know, Will and Grace did their reboot, and I was so I missed a lot in the '90s because I was working enough for two people. You know what I mean? I had two full time careers going on, so I missed like, how do you set up a printer? I missed that completely, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I missed Will and Grace. So yeah. I'm the guy now who's watched the reboot and was like, this is amazing. And people are looking at me going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we saw so that. Yeah. I, we saw that. So I think people had, I think NBC had such a big success with that show. Mm-hmm. They wisely didn't want to just keep doing reboots. So then we shopped it around. We had Peter Tolan. Do you know Peter Tolan? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, a jewel of a writer. Rescue me. I mean, I oh, yeah, yeah. He's done everything. have more respect. Larry Sanders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the kindest, best writers ever. Um, we somehow tricked him into doing it. So there's me and Paul, I don't think like, you tricked him. I don't think you tricked him. <laughs> the original <laughs> DNA of this show, which wow. I'm, you know, I'm forever terribly proud of it. it mm-hmm. Make a sitcom about something so tiny. You know, yeah. how do people love each other over time? 
I'm really, really proud of it. We got him and then didn't find a home for it for an embarrassingly long amount of time. We thought they were going to be like lining up at the gate. And, um, but then we finally did and we made them. They're beautiful. I'm really proud of them. Um, I directed some of those and, and we made a real point to have the show look different than it looked at the time. And, uh, and so I hope people see them. Amazon. Yeah. Go check yeah. Them I out. thought, I thought you guys did a really, a really great job with that. We it's didn't hard. want to do it forever because we thought, why do you do it? And then when we realized Paul's son had just gone to college, my daughter's a year away and we went, Oh, empty nest. Oh, we could write about empty nest. We could do 12 episodes about empty nest. That's a reason to come back. And then after years of kind of looking down our noses at the reboot people, we were like, well, we, we kind of want to, <laughs> we want to do 12 episodes. Yeah, about we ain't NCAA. never going to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, what are you doing right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we're begging people to make it. So that's show business right there in a nutshell. Yeah, but you never know. I mean, things change, you know, your ideas about things can change. And I think it comes from expression. Like you get into a space where you have something that you now want to express and that that becomes the vehicle to express it, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And you get lucky that, oh, we already have something here that we could express this thing with people that I love, you know, yeah, how great is yeah. that? And I do, I, you know, Paul Reiser and I do have this weird mm-hmm. five lifetimes of knowing each other thing. And it's yeah, such a joy to be back in that warm hug. You know? Do you have memories of doing that show the early on of how, of where you were in your life when that started and you had you had no idea what was in front of you. I'm sure with that show, right? No, I was wrong about everything. I, yeah, <laughs> first I, I was wrong. That's the name of my book. Yeah. I was wrong because I thought at first I didn't want to do a sitcom. You know, right. I wanted to be in movies, and I was starting to be in movies, and I didn't want to be the wife in a sitcom. And then I read it and thought, oh, I wonder if they know that they've written this incredible part for the woman. And then I thought. It might get boring after a while because it's a, and it might, but it'll be easy. Everybody said four camera shows, you're home at nine o'clock. Well, the style of our show was not a home at nine o'clock show. It was a home at 3 a.m. because we, and you know, there are other, other of these NBC shows, Friends was much more successful than Mad About You, but the style of their show was, was different. Um, ours had a real, had a structure and it had to have a marriage issue and we wanted it to, it was more time intensive. So, so I was wrong that it would be easy. I was wrong that I would get bored because I never did. Um, and what I was right about is that working with Paul and the fact that we met at this idea that over time, the show would get smaller and smaller, not bigger and bigger. And that that would be exciting that I was right about so, until we did an episode outside of our daughter's door that my dad directed it was one shot for 22 minutes, not one, like take one camera doing one shot of the two of us sitting outside our daughter's door, wondering if we should go in when she's crying or not. Wow. And that was the quintessential episode of Mad About You for me. It was just the two of us and my dad doing 20 minutes of how do we not mess up this kid? How do we get yeah. this right? It was really, who gets to do that? Nobody. Your dad, of course, the famous Gordon Hunt yes. was uh, known for his expertise in acting. He directed the theater my whole life. He was an acting teacher. And then he came in and directed Mad About You and very quickly won a DGA award for the episode he That's directed hilarious. starring Carl Reiner. I know it was one of the best days of my life. 
How much did your dad influence you? I know you were a child actor and that sort of thing. Did, was that your dad's influence? Was it was it something you wanted to do? I mean, I don't know if you were conscious of it at the time, because sometimes kids, we want to please our parents with things, or sometimes there's this thing that we just want to do. Do you have a um, notion of that? Well, my dad directed plays and I went with him. First of all, he never cared if I acted or not. My uh-huh. mother, that was all me. When you were growing up. Yeah. And I didn't even really care. What I knew is that when I went to the, when I went to rehearsal with my dad or when he took me to a play, I thought I want to be in here. I want to be in here where stories are getting told. Some of them scary, some of them heartbreaking, some of them funny in this safe container called the four walls of the theater. And I didn't have any agenda about if I would be acting or directing or getting coffee for the, or combing out the wig. I just knew I wanted to be in this theatrical space. And, um, and then along the same time, someone in my family who was my age, I was nine years old. We would take ballet class on Saturday. Cause what else does a girl do? If you're not into softball, you take ballet. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she was taking an acting class and I said, okay. And then I, something happened in that acting class where I was back in these four walls watching people do scenes. Um, and the kids class was from like, like nine to one and the grown up class was one to three. And I begged her to let me stay for all of it. So mm-hmm. something, something happened. And then I just got a job an agent came and needed a kid to go off to Canada to be in a movie. And I got the part, my first audition and it's on. And I had no agenda about doing it forever. I had, I, it just one thing after another. And then, and then I started really studying with my dad, with a bunch of other teachers. And I thought, Oh, this is not boring. Is not boring. Learning about Shakespeare and how words work is not boring. Having to do research for some period, that's not boring. You know, that feeling of please don't let me be bad. This could be really interesting. And then like one job at a time, here I am. Yeah. Do you ever feel like, because you've worked so much and it was funny as you were talking about being a man about you, I was relating to that, of how you can be so busy and you're it's, uh, I remember, uh, I'll call therapists. I'll use that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, I was talking to, I'll say my guy or whatever <laughs> at one point. And he said, Larry, your mission in life, this should be your mantra is to participate in your own life. And I was like, wow, that is so interesting. Cause it's right. Sometimes I feel like I'll get too busy that I'm not participating in my life. I'm almost observing my life, you know, because you're working so much. Yes. You know, well, see that's, I've just tripped on this. Cause actually I did another interview where someone gave me the dreaded question, which for me is the dreaded question. What happened? You were, you know, you had every movie and every, and I've spent so much time running from that question. Like what's what happened is the question. Yeah. I guess like, Mm -hmm. why aren't I still starring in every movie and winning every Emmy every year? Right. Right. And I, you know, as a defense mechanism, like he's an asshole. I would (laughs) ask that question. And then I thought, well, what am I, what am I running from here? And I realized there was a moment I had done seven years on this show. I did three or four movies during the seasons of doing the show. So that's 22 episodes plus Twister. (laughs) That's 22 episodes plus as good as it gets on the hiatus or at the same time. And I loved it. And I got an obscene amount of recognition for it. And then I thought, I want to have a life. And I, I want my work to come from my life. Not I'm going to borrow for this scene. I'll borrow what happened to me on the set from that scene or spending time pretending to be people's mothers and wives and not having that in my own life, you know, that I did dare to step back a little bit. Um, and the business doesn't love that. If you want to keep this thing going called I'm a female movie star, which about 
two people get to be, you got to keep going. And I, I wanted to pause. I didn't want to let it go, but I wanted uh, some life in my life. And I got that. And I've made all sorts of incredibly interesting work because of it. I wrote and directed two movies. I, I've, you know, worked on the stage a lot and I'm so grateful in a way that I, I wasn't busy doing the next romantic comedy and the next horror movie that I could do all this interesting kind of work. But it, but I didn't, I guess I did a little bit pay the price for not just keeping the machine going. I'm going to star in this franchise movie and then this, you know, I'm going to be this one's girlfriend and this romantic. Like I did take my foot off the gas for a second <laughs> to get a breath. Yeah, but to me, it's like, I feel like people from the outside look at that, but I think from the inside, why would you want to have that type of thing going on all the time? It's unsustainable. It's not even desirable. Yeah. Like that, even that kind of, like when I did my show, The the Nightly Show, I Which really- Which you know I was a huge fan of. That's and, how we, when we first met, yeah. I loved that show. I, you know, I appreciate that so much. You know, they just did this whole history of late night and we were invisible, not even mentioned once. Oh my God, like, we're it's not so invisible. Funny. I'm telling you, you know, I saw it and it was amazing. I appreciate that, you know, and- I really enjoy, this is where I come from in my whole career. Like, I enjoy the expression of what I do and I don't require the attention. You well, know? That, then you're the, then you win the prize. You're the well, winner. Well, I don't know about that. But, <laughs> you're the winner. But, so, but when I'm in the white hot spotlight, it's not attractive to me. You no, know? the only thing about yeah. not having, the, I, I'm not particularly in love with the white spotlight either, mm-hmm. but I want my next job. And yes. sometimes the White House spotlight yeah. is the way you get the next job. And exactly. So if you want to step back from that for a second to be a human being. What happens? <laughs> you know what I mean? What is there a price to pay? It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but I think. Well, when you're a performer, it's tricky, too, because you're at the behest of so many things as an actor, you know. Uh, first of all, there's the fucking zeitgeist and who knows what the yes. zeitgeist is. Is no, one. I've had it pointed at me or enveloping <laughs> yeah. me. It's very weird. And then there yes. it goes. And you're like, oh, what happened? But I <laughs> think we have on. to remind ourselves as artists, you know, that this, the zeitgeist wants this popular thing, but it doesn't, The that's the only value that it is it is extracting at the moment. There's There's not the other value of the art and all this other stuff, it has nothing to do with the zeitgeist, you know? And we're so vulnerable as performers and artists sometimes because sometimes we connect ourselves to that. If we're not connected to it, then some, are we, am I not valid right now? Am I not doing something that's interesting or important? You know, I mentioned Jim again, Jim Brooks. And so yeah. He's my best. We hardly ever talk, but I noticed when that movie got made and when he was making movies all the time, he would be told to hire the popular person and he didn't care. He found Greg Kamir had been doing something on E. Yeah, that's was, right. Talk I soon. was famous, yeah. but I was famous for a sitcom and Twister. He didn't want me in that movie, but, but he let me come in and he let me audition. And he, more importantly, he might've been forced to let me audition. That's possible. But nonetheless, when I started doing the scenes, he was like, wait a minute. <laughs> She's 10 years younger than I wanted. She's not famous for the kinds of things I wanted. She's right. not, but something's happening here. And I'm going to trust that rather than what the zeitgeist moment is telling me to do. And I've seen him hire brilliant people because he did not bow to that. This person's hot right now. He, he trusted the artist he was and the magic sentence he had to tell and thought, this guy could help me tell that. I don't care how cool or uncool it is to hire him today. And by the way, that'll change by the time the movie comes out. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Are you at the point right now where you want to do like more directing as an artist or do you want to, or are you still not still, but is acting the vehicle that you're you're finding? You still want to, you want to be carving out that space. I mean, I love good stories. People say, how do you choose a part? It's all the story. I did Castaway instead of a much bigger part in something that Bob Zemeckis was making at the same time because I thought that's a cool story. I asked them if I could be in it because I was like, that's something I haven't heard before. So I want to tell great stories. I don't feel necessarily like a director, like I'm dying to be a director for hire. I've got a director every year where I'm not working. Mm-hmm. It's, it's when there's good. a story that I'm either the author of or can feel authorship over the piece, then I want to do it. And I don't care if the genre is the Twister sequel or the tiny indie. I care about being part of a good story. Um, I never, ever, ever want to not be acting. Acting is really good for me. It's good for my personality to be acting. I love it. I have a lot, and I love actors. That most of the fun of directing is getting to you whisper one sentence in an actor's ear, and you watch them come to life, and you go, "Oh my god, I didn't screw them up." Yeah, yeah. One of, one of my uh, uh, best memories uh, when we were doing the uh, Blackish pilot and uh, Trixie Ellis Ross, who's fantastic, you yeah, know, and sure. I went in to, to give her a note, you know, and I stopped. She We made eye contact and I just made a hand gesture. I went, I just, I just did something <laughs> yeah. with my hands and we looked at each other and she was like, ah, like I got uh, it. Like she got it. She knew exactly what I was coming in for, you know, and I started as an actor too, you know, performing all that kind of stuff. And didn't have to say a word. And I'll never forget that moment. It was, and it, you know, it wasn't, you know, this big scene or anything, but it was, it was a communication that you can only have with actors. You can't have that type of communication with the grip, you know, or with the, no. with the cinematographer, but the actor, you can make this connection and then they get it. And when they get it and it, and they interpret it and make it something you're like, Oh man, that's even better than I thought. You it's know? the best feeling and i i have a lifelong love of actors actors in acting class they don't have to be fancy work you know like i love the craft of it and i i i have a certain like pride in the fact that when i walk on a set i can chat with one of the other crew members and we're being very sort of we've got our personalities on when they say it's time he can keep his personality on i have to go be a wild animal I have to I have to walk in the way I walk Wild and sound animal. funny and I remember things from my dreams and dredge up Man, my past wow. and imagine the future like I'm I'm get to be the out of control one. Yeah. That's really fun. I That's love really that. Fun. Yeah. What's your relationship with theater right now? Are you will you be doing some more theater and that sort of thing? First of all, it'd be awesome when the well, theater is happening Yes, I was going to say, Larry, we're in a <laughs> pandemic. Do you know what's been going on? Yeah, uh, um, it's coming back slowly. I mean, I think the Black actors I know are not going to be running back in anytime soon until there's some pretty real changes that happen. You know, that's that's step one. Um, but I love it more than anything. I got to do um, this musical Working, Studs Turkle's Working. Do you know that mm-hmm. show? No. It's based on Studs Turkle's book, which is mm-hmm. interviews with people in every profession. And then... Yeah. I know about the book. So James Taylor wrote a song for it. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a song for it. Mary Rogers wrote a song for it. And I got to be in that in New York, not long before the pandemic, nine months or so before the pandemic. Um, And got, there's a song written for the housewife and a song written for the teacher. And I got to sing those two songs with all these incredible performers. So that was a dream. I did play the stage manager in our town in New York and here. Did you see that production? No. Oh, I, I wish you had. I miss so many things. David Cromer, 
Uh, I directed the band's visit. You see that mm-hmm. show? Incredible. He and a group of actors put together a production. He was the original stage manager in it that sort of had an Andre Gregory mm-hmm. feel to it. I feel like the way I keep talking about Jim Brooks, he would keep talking about Andre Gregory. And <laughs> That's it, great. He never changed a word of the text. Mm-hmm. But he made it as real as the cup of coffee I'm holding and the microphone in front of you. Interesting. It was the the Gibbs and the Webbs. Those are the two families in our town. And they're often played in sort of olden daisy kind of way. Yeah. Of being. <laughs> yes. And he said, no, these are marriages in trouble. Wow. These are young people that believe that leaving this town is could make or break their lives. Like he, he brought it into the earth and it was devastating. I love seeing these, uh, these revivals of those, you know, these old shows and that kind of thing that especially when people are able to breathe new life in it without necessarily changing it, as you say, but, but just contemporaries, contemporizing it in just this other way, you know, sometimes with performance and that sort of thing. It's very interesting to me. I have a friend, a, a playwright named Jeffrey Knopfs. When I did the play, I looked at him and said, our town, because I had done it on Broadway when I was in my twenties, you know, hi George, hi Emily. Like, old-fashioned New Hampshire, whatever. And this production was not that. And he said, it's as if it's the only play. And I'll tell you, during the pandemic, the third act of Our Town is all about, am I appreciating it enough? Am I appreciating the cup of coffee and the five minutes with my mother in the morning? Can we possibly appreciate it all enough? And, you know, when you get, when you go through what, Many of us went through you, especially during this last year. It's all the third act of our town. Am I am I grateful enough that I get to spend an hour with you talking? You know. Yeah, you mentioned Chekhov earlier in the Seagull. You could go. You could read any of Chekhov's things, and it's still relevant today. You understand? I understand Chekhov more now than I did. When I was younger, I was like, who's this Chekhov? What's the cherry orchard? What is that about? Well, that's for sure the case with Our Town. I mean, it's always played done in high schools, but really you have to have lost someone. You have to be a parent and then you go see it. And people had to be carried out of that theater, including me. It was a big experience. Do you have a do you have a favorite play? Our Town. Oh, it is Our Town. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I want to blink and have you see this production. I think you'd, you'd, know, what, you'd know what I mean. <laughs> I'm so mad. I love live theater. That's what I'm talking about. I really, really miss it. There's nothing like it. I'm always energized after it, Helen. Whenever I see a show, I want to do so much when I see it. I'm so inspired by it. I told Tobias this that I always, and this is going to sound weird, I'm always in tears at the end of a show. There's, I, I start and I don't know what it is. I'm emotional. And I thought about this when I was telling somebody this and they said, does the thing make you sad? Or you, I go, no, you know what it is? I'll tell you exactly what it is. I'm sad because the show is over. <laughs> I said, I had to examine it because I'm like, why am I emotional at the end of shows? It's not the story. I said, when the lights come up, I'm sad that the show is over. Well, that's why yes. I'm an actor. It's being in those rooms. I cry at the beginning of every show before it, yeah. it by the way, might suck, which is also true of the theater. It could be terrible. But just the promise of it. Yes. You know, the here it comes. People are going to come Gets out and that energy. try something. It's so moving to me. What about acting, uh, teaching? Have you, yeah, you I have, my dad taught forever. And when he passed away, when he was sick and, and when he ultimately passed away, um, a wonderful teacher named Richard Hill and I took over the class. We kind of alternate. So I've got these beautiful group of actors who are working so hard and I offer them what I can offer them. You know, here's what I do when I'm afraid I'm going to suck. <laughs> here's this, here's this tool bag I bring to work and here's what I use. If it helps you take it. Have you guys been doing it during the pandemic? 
Yeah, on Zoom, which I can't, I'm so impressed that they are working and bringing scenes in and doing it on Zoom. And you really can get to all the acting issues on Zoom. It's not as much fun, but but you can, but they are warmed up. When they get their next job, they're going to be ready to go. And what's coming up next for you, Helen? Is there something that you're dying to do? You know, I'm still working on the piece that I met with you about a million years ago. So Hey, now the world is ready. I mean, the world caught up with you. Or, or, or did we miss it? <laughs> yes, or did they miss it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm really comforted to hear you say that. Um, you'll come on a press junket with me about it and say, this Absolutely. was this before. So we're still humbly working on that. And, you know, I'm looking for the next great part. Like every actor, you're just always looking for the next great part. Yeah, well, we all enjoy uh, watching you and all that you do. And it's so nice to talk to you, to get to hear the underneath and all that stuff. There's so much. I'll say this about Helen Hunt, you guys. There's there's an intelligence to all of her work, but there's a humanity in that intelligence, too. It's that combination, I think, is why people like you so much. There's something under there that's working, you know, <laughs> that's that's connecting all of us. And it's just beautiful to watch you no thank matter you. what you're in. And thank, thank you for thank being you. so much. The show Blind Spotting, you guys, it's on Stars. It's unlike anything on television. It's very original. And as we talked about earlier, it's got this really important theme about uh, kind of this big issue of what we're going through in this unusual thing. And Helen Ott is the mom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining Thank us, you. Helen. It's so Thank great talking so to much. you. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon, I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely.